Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. While you are turning there, uh, let me welcome all of you here. Let me also welcome 24 folks from the First Baptist Church, Woodway, Texas. Will all you folks stand up back there? Yes, we welcome you. So good to see all of you. Uh, the folks at First Baptist Woodway have come down here, what, for the last four or five summers and uh, done sports camps uh, for us. And we appreciate you all. Thank you very much for uh, coming and being a part of our summer, our summers. We appreciate you very much. Uh, also, uh, these flowers that are here were uh, placed in honor of Miss Hilda Pace. Now, most of you probably don't know Miss Hilda, but she has been in this church a long, long time. Tomorrow, Hilda turns 90 years old. She was in the first service, but go ahead and give her a, a, an applause because she deserves every bit of it. Uh, Miss Hilda is a widow. When Amanda and I came here in 2000, uh, she and her husband, Charlie, were big workers in this church. Charlie was, uh, he, he directed senior adults and he cooked on Wednesday night. And, and he and another guy named Jack Bentley, who is also no longer with us, and Neil Baird, did their best to teach me how to play golf. And after about a year to a year and a half, I was coming up and I was up for a raise and all three of them, Neil, Jack, and Charlie came up and said, the only way we're voting for you is if you stop playing golf. So I did. They still voted against my raise. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But anyway, this is here. These are flowers are here for Hilda and she's a legend here and we love her very much. So glad you're here. Uh, This message is entitled, The Fragility of Unity. And we're reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And I'm going to read this morning from the New Living Translation. Paul says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now, you have been united with Jesus Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together, As one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. 
Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. In our New Testament, there are 13 letters that are attributed to the apostle Paul. 13 letters. There were actually 14 letters admitted into the uh, canon of the New Testament because of their affiliation with Paul, but 13 of them are specifically attributed to Paul in the New Testament. And of those 13 letters, there are five letters that are called Paul's prison letters, his prison epistles, because he wrote those five letters when he was in a prison in the city of Rome. He was imprisoned twice in Rome, The first time was in the year 62, and during that time he wrote four letters, the letters to the Philippians, to the Colossians, to Philemon, and the letter to the Ephesians, this one to the Ephesians. There's one other prison letter that he wrote not during his first imprisonment, but during his second imprisonment, and uh, at the end of that imprisonment he was executed. That letter is uh, 2 Timothy. So there are obvious 13 letters, five of them are prison letters, and four of those are written during his first prison stay in Rome in A.D. 62. Of all of Paul's letters, there's one letter that is most puzzling. There's one letter that throughout the centuries of Christian history has been the most troubling to scholars, and that letter is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Indeed, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is an enigma. It is an oddball. It stands out above all the rest of the letters because of how different it is. It's different in a number of ways. Most notably, it is different because in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul does not mention anyone by name. There are no personal references in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now you say, well, that's not that big of a deal. We write letters all the time. Some of them have personal references. Some of them don't. So it's not, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Well, it normally would not be that big of a deal except for one thing. All of the rest of Paul's letters are filled with personal names. He scatters personal references throughout all of the other 12 letters, but there's not a single one in his letter to the Ephesians. He even scatters personal names in some letters that he wrote to churches that he did not even found. He didn't start some of the churches. For instance, when he wrote his letter to the Colossian church, Paul did not start the the church at Colossae. And yet in that letter, he mentioned several people by name, personal references. But there are no personal references at all in his letter to the Ephesians. What makes that even more ironic is... That of all the churches Paul did start, 
Paul stayed at Ephesus longer than he stayed at any other church. He stayed there a total of three years. The next longest place that he stayed at was Corinth, and he stayed there a year and a half. So in Ephesus, Paul stayed twice as long as he stayed at any other church. And so if there was any church where Paul would have known the most people, it would be the church at Ephesus. And therefore, you'd think that if he wrote a letter to the Ephesian church, he would fill that letter with the names of people he was close to. And yet the letter to the Ephesians doesn't have a single personal reference. It even seems at times a little cold because of the lack of personal names. What is Paul thinking? Some people believe that Paul didn't write this letter. Other people believe that uh, maybe it was Paul, but they didn't know what he was thinking. There may be a hint that we can find. If you were to go back, this, this uh, verse will not be on the slide, but if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says in in that verse, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the holy people in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. In Ephesus. That phrase, in Ephesus, is what I want you to focus on because of the more than 5,500 manuscript copies of New Testament books that are in existence today, there are some copies of the New Testament in which the place where the words in Ephesus would be is left blank. There's just a blank space there. And scholars have seen that, and that has led them to conclude that perhaps Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians, was a circular letter that was meant to be read by several churches. And so, uh, you will you remember that uh, there are no copying machines back in those days. And so when Paul would write a letter for the longest, the only copy of it was the one that he had penned himself or that he had dictated to someone else to write. And he would send someone. In this case, there was a man named Tychicus. He sends Tychicus, and Tychicus would stand in front of the church at Ephesus, and he would read the letter. These letters were meant to be read out loud. And so he would read this letter to the Ephesian church, and when he would read verse 1, he would say, this is from Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God to the holy people who are in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. But suppose that Tychicus, after he read this letter to the Ephesians, went down the road to the church in Colossae, and he read to them the exact same letter, which he could, because it doesn't have any personal references in it. And so he stands up and, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the holy people who are, and where in Ephesus is a blank space, he would say, in Colossae or in Laodicea. In other words, it would have been a circular letter. And so probably the letter to the Ephesians was a circular letter that was meant to be read to many churches. And that is the reason, maybe, that Paul doesn't put any personal references in it. That certainly would solve the problem, except for Paul's letter to the Colossians was also a circular letter. Paul even tells us so at the end of Colossians. He says, make sure that this letter is read to the church at Laodicea and make sure you read their letter that I wrote to them. And yet Colossians is 
It includes several personal references. So it doesn't quite solve the problem, but it could be a possible answer to the problem. But there's another thing that Paul does here that is really interesting, and he does this in many of his letters. He is a genius. And when you take a genius and you anoint him with God's Holy Spirit, you really have a piece of work right there. And Paul was a genius who was inspired of the Holy Spirit. And so when he's writing to people, he does this brilliant thing. And, and the brilliant thing he does is he, as he's writing to one group, he writes intending to be overheard by another group. It's really uh, brilliant because we tend to overhear better than we hear. Uh, in fact, I would be a whole lot better if I would just take my sermons from this point on and preach them to this wall over here for you to overhear because you folks overhear a whole lot better than you hear. Even those of you who, like me, wear hearing aids, all of a sudden your hearing gets so much better when you're overhearing what someone is saying. Paul would do this. Uh, he does it in many of his letters. We know this because, uh, for instance, take First uh, Timothy. His first letter to Timothy, Timothy is a pastor, he's pastoring a church, he's a young pastor, Paul is writing to him, and it is very clear that he is writing directly to Timothy. And you and I read 1 Timothy, and we say, obviously, he's saying this to Timothy. Pretty clear, he's speaking only to Timothy, except when you get to the last chapter, in chapter 6, the pronouns in Greek are all plural not singular. Now, uh, if I said to you, I'm talking to you, the word Y-O-U might mean one person, might be one person, Martin George, I'm talking to you, that's one person. But I, I use the same word you if I'm talking to all of you. I'm talking to you or I'm talking to you. But in Greek, the pronouns come in singular and plural forms. And so it's easy to distinguish them in Greek, whereas you can't always do that in English. And so the pronouns, when you get down to, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, they're not singular as though Paul is only talking to Timothy. They are plural, which means Paul intended for Timothy's church to overhear what he was saying to Timothy. It's a brilliant thing. Now, we Southerners, I, I have to rush to admit, we have solved this issue because uh, uh, in, in our southern translations of the Bible, those, those words you that, in, that are in Greek are plural, we, we, we've done it, right? We say you all. Grace to you all. And so they're plural. See, if we southerners fix everything, so they ought to just leave it to us, right? Well, maybe not. Anyway, Paul is writing to be overheard. Now, when we look at this particular text, to whom is Paul speaking? Just in this text alone. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, to whom is he speaking? On the surface, it looks very clear that he's talking to non-Jewish people in the church at Ephesus. That is, Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. So in uh, verse number 11, he says this, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens. In verse 22, through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives. So, so the two verses that form bookcases for this text are directly 
uh, uh, directly pointed toward the Gentiles. But this brilliant Paul is doing something else here. There is no doubt that while he's talking to the Gentiles, Paul intends to be overheard by the Jewish Christians in that church. Because he wants these Jewish Christians to remember that these Gentiles who have accepted Christ, they now are also part of the people of God. He says in verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He has united Jews and Gentiles into one people. And further in verse 14, he broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. You see, there was this, in all of these churches where Paul was writing, there were there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians and there was always this undertone of friction and conflict between the two groups. And Paul says, look, you Gentiles, God has brought you through Christ into the family of God. And you, you Jews, you remember that God has brought these Gentiles into, into the body and now the two people are one. He's broken down the hostility between us. So on the surface, the text looks like it's addressed to the Gentiles, but upon a closer look, Paul probably intended that his remarks be overheard by the Jewish Christians as well. Well, what is Paul's main thought here? That's really what we want to pull out of this text, right? What is his main thought? Well, when you look at throughout this text where he talks about unity and united and he's pulled together two groups into one and he's taken these two groups and he's made them one people of God. Clearly, what Paul is talking about here is unity and division. In the early church, Paul had to deal with divisions and he was concerned because the, uh, he's writing in 62, Jesus was crucified and resurrected 32 years earlier. So the Christian church as a faith is brand spanking new. The churches are young. If they're young, they are brittle. They're fragile. And so he's writing to urge unity among a lot of divided churches. And so... He's writing about unity and division. Because for Paul, unity in church is fragile. The fragility of unity. I'll tell you that there's so much, and there has always been so much division in churches. In fact, this is the first thing that I want to say to you, and that is that division is nothing new to God's people. In the early church, people were divided, even though they were members of the same, congre same congregation. There were Jewish Christians who didn't like the Gentile Christians. There were Gentile Christians who didn't like the Jewish Christians, and yet they were all in the same place. There were people who didn't agree down the line on every item of belief, and sometimes they were fierce in their opposition with each other. And sometimes a, a mediator like Paul would have to step in and bring the groups together. Division is nothing new to God's people. And I will tell you that division is not uncommon for God's people today. In fact, the divisions that plague our nation and the divisions that plague our world have encroached upon the church and infiltrated the church. And so many churches today are divided and too, too often reflect the division in the world rather than the unity that is in the Godhead. We need 
to be reflecting the unity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rather than reflecting the division that is in our world. Division is nothing new to God's people. And division, most of the time, is caused by misplaced priorities. When there is division in the church, what what normally is the cause of it is we have left the basic essentials and we have camped out on some things that that we have have made essential, even though they're non-essential, and we have misplaced them, our priorities, on those non-essentials. And churches, there are divisions over doctrine, doctrinal divisions. Uh, The earliest division in the church was a doctrinal division over the requirements for salvation. They met in Acts chapter 15, and they had a big church council to decide, okay, uh, the Gentiles who are coming into the church, are they saved only by trusting in Jesus for their salvation, or must they trust in Jesus plus adhere to certain Jewish rituals such as circumcision. And so they hashed out doctrinal issues. When Paul first wrote these, these letters of his, there was not, there was not a, any such thing as a denomination. There weren't denominations. There was just the way. That's what they called themselves, the way. And it was one group, one group of churches, and they were all just Christians. But since that time, 2,000 years ago, Churches split, and then they split again, and then denominations split. And now, 2,000 years later, there are 38,000-plus and growing denominations within Christianity. We went from one group to over 38,000 groups, and most of it, most of the division was over doctrine. This group didn't agree with this group over baptism. This group didn't agree with this group over salvation. This group didn't agree with this group over predestination or free will. And so they decided that because of the divisions, none of of which were essentials. They were important, but they weren't essential. But they figured can't fellowship with you, and so they separated out into denominations. Even in the United States of America, there are over 350 different forms of Baptists. There's so much division. A lot of it is over doctrine. About two years ago, we had a family visit in our church. They started visiting in January, and they started, unlike most families, they started visiting on a Wednesday night. We had Wednesday night supper and activities. They visited on a Wednesday night. It was a family of uh, a, a, a husband, wife, and I think they had four children, three or four children. And they started on Wednesday night, and then they came the following Sunday morning. And then they came the next Wednesday night, and they came the second Sunday morning. They came five straight Wednesday nights and five straight Sunday mornings to our church. And they would come up, and, and they were getting involved, and, and they really seemed like nice folks. The kids loved the youth group, and, and they got in Sunday school. On the end of the fifth Sunday, at the end of the service, the dad came up to me, and he said, I really have been enjoying the services. Your people have been really, really nice. They've been really welcoming. And then he said, And we're thinking about joining, but I wanted to ask you a question. I said, okay. He said, how old do you think the earth is? 
and it took me back a minute. Because I knew that the question, before he ever asked the question, I knew that the question he was about to ask was about to be his deal breaker. Depending on how I answered the question. So I didn't want to answer the question. So I said to him, I said, well, if you're asking our church's stance on the age of the earth, we don't have a stance on it. In our, in our doctrinal statement, we simply state that we believe God created the world, the universe, and everything that is in it. I said, now within our church, we have some folks, we really do have some folks who believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. On the other hand, we really do have some folks who believe that the earth is 5 billion years old and that the universe is 15 billion years old. And I said, we, we uh, so far as I know, we fellowship together. And he interrupted me. He says, no, I want to know what you think. And so I told him. And evidently, The answer I gave him was not the answer he wanted to hear, and we never saw that family again. Their issue was doctrinal. Let me tell you something. I don't care what you think about the age of the earth. Oh, now, now don't misunderstand me. I didn't say I don't care about you. I care about you deeply. But I don't care what you believe about the age of the earth. I don't care if you believe it's 5 billion years old or if if you believe it's 6,000 years old. I really don't care. You know why? Because I truly believe that when you and I die and we stand before God, God is not going to say, all right, how old do you think the earth is? He's not going to do that, folks. He's not going to do that. He is not going to do that. I'll tell you what he's going to look for, and it's the only thing he's going to look for. He's going to look and see if you have trusted Jesus Christ for your, for your salvation and if the blood of Jesus is applied to your heart. That's going to be the only thing he's looking for. Amen. Doctrinal divisions. Then there's tribal divisions. My clan can't get along with your clan. My clique doesn't get along with your clique. And by the, by the way, every church has cliques. I run into some folks sometimes, they say, I'm looking for a clickless church. I said, well, you might as well just stay home, bro. Because you're not going to find one. I mean, in fact, what we do in church, promoting small groups and trying to pull people together, by in and of itself, it creates cliques in a good way. Granted, all small groups can go in a bad way, but click, your family versus my family. So many churches in America are family-owned and operated, and you can visit there, and it won't take you long. They'll they'll be very welcoming at first, and and before long, you realize that you're never going to get on the inside of that group because you are from off. And ultimately, you'll get discouraged and you'll leave and go somewhere else. That's why you can go into towns that are growing population-wise by leaps and bounds and you'll find all these little bitty churches. And you say, why aren't these churches growing? I'll tell you why. Because they are family-owned and operated. Some of you have been in them. Tribal. Political. In fact, I believe this is probably the worst one plaguing us today. 
Political divisions in our country have crept into our church to the point where now if it, we have people who are saying, if you don't believe and vote exactly the way I do in every political contest, I can't fellowship with you. Guess what? God's not going to ask you that either. Doesn't make half of you mad. Dictatorial, somebody wanting to control stuff. Personal, somebody said something that hurt somebody else, offended somebody else. It made them mad and the divisions come up. Divisions, divisions, divisions. But let me tell you this though, number three, is that division is not what God wants for his people. He can use divisions, but he doesn't like divisions. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 He says, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In the Old Testament, Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. Clearly, even in those three verses, we could come up with tons more. Clearly, it is not God's will that division characterize His people. And then finally, division can be overcome when instead of focusing on the periphery issues, the non-essential issues, instead we focus on the bare essentials of our faith. And remarkably, there are very few. What are they? First is salvation. In fact, we didn't read the first 10 verses of this chapter, but the first 10 verses talk about what salvation really is. And Paul sums it up with verse 8 in chapter 2 where he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, salvation, being saved, receiving eternal life is by grace, that it is, that is, it is free, through faith, that is, that you trust in uh, You trust in Jesus Christ, and it is not, you do not get it by working for it, by being smart enough to get it, by, by taking a test. It's simply by trusting Christ for faith. That is salvation, and that is a bare essential. What other bare essentials are there? One day some folks asked Jesus, uh, must have asked him a question like this, Lord, when people see us, when people see us, those who follow you out in public, how will they know that we are following you? How will, how will they know we belong to you? And here's what Jesus said in John 13. He says, here is how people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do you see that? Now, notice what he does not say. If you agree with me politically, they will know. If you Uh, agree with me doctrinally, they will know. If you are in my family, then they will know. No, he says, if you love one another, period. That's how people should be able to identify you as one of mine. So let me 
let me impress upon you two bare essentials. Salvation through Jesus Christ and loving everybody like it's nobody's business. And you know what? If we'll just focus on those two things, I'm not saying the other things aren't important, but if we'll just focus on those two things, God will take care of the other things. It's not our business to try to take care of them. It's our business to reach people for Christ and to love people like they've never been loved before. That, those two things are the bare essentials. Paul was writing this letter and he knew, he knew how brittle we are. He knew how fragile we are. I've been in churches where revival was sweeping through that congregation and, and people were being added to the church over a period of years. And I, I've, seen, I've seen that revival be quenched in a single word that shouldn't have been said. The churches are, we're so fragile. And yet we're the only hope, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody else. Nobody else is going to tell the world about Jesus except us. We're the church. We're given the responsibility for evangelizing the world, for spreading the love of Christ. If we don't do it, it's not going to be done. And if we do it, we must be speaking with one voice. Division is not God's will. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Sometimes when you look down at your church, you must really be shaking your head. <laughs> because there are times when your church is so broken up, fighting, infighting, conflict, tension. We put so many other things ahead of the important things. And God, I pray that you would help us to lay aside our political preferences, our tribal preferences, our personal preferences, at least in the church, so that we can be devoted to reaching people for Christ and loving people. Help us to do that. If we're going to insist upon a, people agreeing with us, then let's let those two things be our points of agreement. Lord, I pray for someone who is here and never been saved, that they will come and invite you to be their Savior. I pray for people who are looking for a church home. I pray for people who just need to come to the altar to worship, just to worship or to pray. Lord, move upon us right now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.